Watch a shooting star as it passed by your face. Wipe up every teardrop as you cry. Fall asleep while resting in your warm embrace. This is where my mind goes late at night. Welcome to Weiss FM uh, this week. My birthday episode, so I had to be joined by a very special close friend of mine um, and also a Chicago legend, uh, writer, author, host here at WGN, and general amazing person, Rick Kogan. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure to be on a show with a radio professional, please. <laughs> and I love your podcast. You know Thank that. Thank you. Yeah. You and know that. I was one of the first to hear it, and I think it's a grand idea, and I hope I can live up to some of the... Uh, previous guests you've had because you ask you ask all the right questions and you you. have as i now know you have a mom who deeply deeply influenced not only your taste in music but i think your general curiosity even though i've only met your mom for 10 minutes i I, I sense that that's true um she is she is something else but this is about you and i'm really excited to hear about your influences because i don't know I don't. I don't know. I mean, you've had such an awesome career in so many different. It's just a long <laughs> career. <Don't, laughs> That's my now, way of it, saying it, that. Yeah, awesome being the <laughs> euphemism, ladies and gentlemen, for a long career. Um, but why don't we just first start talking about like when you started writing? When what was the the first kind of thing you? What got you into writing? We don't have to talk about influences yet. Well, the rarest book in the Kogan oeuvre, as they say, and on the bookshelf, is a book called Davy Crockett and the Indian Scouts, which, legend has it, I wrote when I was seven years old and in bed with a kidney infection in a little apartment in Old Town. And I dictated this book to my grandmother, who was sort of taking care of me, Teresa Maud Cavanaugh. And uh, it was great because uh, I'm not sure it's ever going to be made into a movie, but at the end of the book, and it shows you what kind of weird seven-year-old I was. I was probably watching The Lone Ranger on TV. <laughs> but I altered the book enough so that, so that Tonto got the girl at the end and not the Lone Ranger. Wow, underdog. Yeah, totally. And I think... It says something about my mother, Mary Lou Kavanaugh Kogan, that she had this book when I was about 14. It was typed on regular uh, stock paper by my grandmother, and she had it bound in a beautiful leather-bound copy. And so that was when I started writing. I don't remember doing any other writing uh, subsequently, too fast, but yeah. Davy Crockett and the Indian Scout was the beginning of this career. So this this book, um, which is treasured and I'm sure will be printed someday. I don't even know where it is. I know it's somewhere. <laughs> find it. I know it's in one of my many storage <laughs> lockers across the city yeah. and across the Midwest. Um, so what w- were, was it like a picture book? Were there illustrations? Oh my God, no, no, no. no. It was, it was straight narrative, man. Wow. Straight narrative. And was it kind of stream of conscience, or did you have so- several drafts, or? Oh, no, I couldn't have. I wouldn't even known what a draft was. I think <laughs> it was kind of manipulated, I think, by my grandmother, who was taking dictation from me. And that's how the book came to be. And then she later typed it up. Oh. And uh, so in, in many ways, it was the easiest book I ever wrote. There you go. Yeah. We, need, we need to get that. But I, I grew oh, I up in a, in a very, 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 very literary household. My father wrote books. He was a newspaper man. The house was, in every room, was filled with bulging 
bookcases because many of the parents of my of my uh, classmates were writers. The parents of my friends were writers, and most of my father's and mother's friends were writers. Nelson Algren, Studs Turco, Willard Motley, James Jones. I hope some of those names are not obscure to your listeners, but they were famous in their time. Wow. And were you a good student? Modestly good. Uh, I went to LaSalle in the heart of Old Town, which was then a uh, an old-fashioned Chicago public school. It's now a language academy, a selective enrollment kind of place, but it was just a regular grammar school. Uh, I, I was probably a fairly decent student. I did get all, what were they, G's? Yeah, in old, in the old, they were all G's. <laughs> What's in that the mean, great? Report card. Yeah, glorious. Glorious. It was for glorious. Of course. <laughs> uh, I still, I, I can't find my first book, but I can find old report cards because the Kogan family kept everything. And when something, you know, appealed to me, uh, I could, I suppose, turn it on. One of my glories, and when I was in fourth grade, my teacher was named Grace Suru. She was Hawaiian. I was going to say, that's a kind of exotic And I was around year. her when Hawaii became a state. Years and years later, and she always thought highly of me, and I would see her years later. Many, 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 many years later, she retired from LaSalle School, then as the assistant principal. And she introduced me to her son, who I had never met, who was then like, I don't know, 30. And his name was Rick. And she had named him after me. No. So I don't know if that says that I was a really, really good student or I was unbelievably cute <laughs> when I was in grammar school. I was incredibly moved by that yeah. and, and, and never really followed up because I was too embarrassed to say, Mrs. Suru, which I always called her, why Why did you name your only child That's amazing. after me? It is amazing. Actually, on that note, I, that reminded me, my dad, is a, he has three brothers, um, so it's a family of four boys growing up in Juliet, and they had a foreign exchange student one year um, from Brazil, Mauro, and he named his son after my dad's brother, Rick. So... <laughs> There are too many Ricks in this world. <laughs> Clearly. There are just um. too many Ricks. But so, I, you know, I, I have a vague memory of getting quite good grades at LaSalle and then later when uh, I went to Latin school, but only in subjects that sort of turned me on. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I had one year where I was, seemed to be some kind of math prodigy, but that was only one Fleeting. year. Yeah. No, seriously, it was like trigonometry. That's funny. And the teacher said, I was a junior in high school, and said, you know, Rick, I, have you ever thought of becoming a mathematician? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and then, then the next year I flunked bombed. or something. Yeah, it was just. It <laughs> You're was like, a, I got to prove that this is not for me. It was a weird anomaly that Funny. I was a great one year in trigonometry. So great at it. Some kind of idiot savant <laughs> at it that the teacher thought I should go in. Can you imagine me as some kind of a no. physicist or mathematician or something? Uh-uh. No, it didn't work out. Yeah. But, you know, history and, and always, always, always uh, literature, English, and writing is something that had um, an undeniable appeal. And, again, it's because the influence of mother and father who I was surrounded by books as a kid, just surrounded by them. And let's talk about that. So your dad was a newspaper man. Yes, he was. What did your mom do? She was, for a time, it, when they met, she was also a newspaper woman she worked for the tribune my father worked for the 
Sometimes, and they met at a place called Ricardo's in 1948, and they decided to get married, and they decided to have this son. I don't know, maybe they didn't decide to have this son named Rick. They had a son <laughs> named Rick who mm-hmm. was named after Rick Ricardo, who owned the uh, oh, wow. the restaurant, uh, glorious bar at the corner of Russian Hubbard, now the shuttered Stefani's 437. Uh, Rick was something of an artist and a bon vivant, and they named me after him. Wow. Yeah, and it's not Richard. Right. I'll give you another fourth grade, fifth grade story. This woman, Mrs. Corrigan, my teacher, kept calling me Richard on the first or second day of school, and I I said, you know, Mrs. Corrigan, my name is really Rick. And she said, nobody's name, and nobody's name is really Rick. It's (laughs) Richard, and Rick is a short name, and I made the, the horrible mistake of telling my mother that, so she accompanied me to school the next day to uh, enlighten Mrs. Corrigan and thereby telling me that I had been named after a restaurateur saloon keeper. Yeah, that's when I learned. There you go. Yeah. So was your mom kind of like that, like a force of nature? Well, she, after leaving newspaper, she became head of public relations for the Art Institute. Oh, wow. And that is how a number of visual artists sort of came into, into our lives. And I think the great thing, Lise, was that they because they were part of the arts community out there, that exposure to arts on every single level, theater, music, everything, was, it was like as natural as, you know, playing catch. Wow. That's so cool. So, did you play a lot of catch, too? I did. I was a good athlete. I was a good athlete. But I never, never good enough. If you're a good athlete, where I went to high school, I went to the Latin school, of Chicago when it was relatively inexpensive, and the reason I went there is when it was time to leave LaSalle School, our neighborhood high school. There were no selective enrollment high schools in Chicago. Then you went to your neighborhood high school, and ours, my brother, younger brother Mark and I, we would have been going to Cooley High, which was in the middle of a gang-infested Cabrini Green, and that was not going to happen, Like unlike... A lot of my parents' friends, they did not decide to just move to Evanston or Oak Park or some other suburb where they could go to a free, nice public high school. My mother simply refused to move out of the city. Sounds familiar. And so, yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and we went, to, uh, we went to the Latin school, which was a very, you know, sort of stuffy private school in those days. But that, too, was a, was a, uh, a tremendous education because they taught... Unlike what's happened, it seems to me, in the last couple of generations is is higher education has become very pragmatic. You go to get a degree, which will then make you money. Uh, at Latin, it was learn for learning's sake. And that was a very, very refreshing way to uh, to experience books. I mean, I know a lot of people who in whatever profession, once they got their degree. It's not like I'm not going to go to a doctor who doesn't have a degree, but they were liberally educated, and I believe that any liberally educated person can do anything. You know, it is not hard to learn how to run a radio board or to type on a computer, and you can learn this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um... So your parents, did they foster your kind of writing career in its early days? I know your mom bound the leather uh, book. They fostered self-expression, and they 
they nurtured curiosity. And I think, as far as any kind of influence goes, that, that curiosity is is perhaps, as Studs Turco was my father's best friend and a huge influence on me, said he wanted, he told me the first time, he was in his early 90s and he was talking about dying, as he always did, and he said that he wanted his epitaph to be, when he died, uh, curiosity did not kill this cat. <laughs> and I think that's something, and I saw it in, in, in abject form, Studs would get up every day kind of with the notion of what can I learn today? What can I see today? What can I hear that I haven't heard before? What can I read that I've never read before? What can I see that I've never seen before? And I think that it fueled his longevity. I don't think Studs ever did a sit-up in his life, certainly not a push-up. <laughs> he was not an exercise kind of person. He didn't live that particularly healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But I think his insatiable desire for new things and experiences is what allowed him to live. You know, certain genetics involved, I suppose, but also that uh, th that urge to live life fully. And my parents also, my father, had a, you know, I would come back from seeing Spartacus at uh, the McVickers Theater downtown and say, Dad, we saw this cool movie named Spartacus. Tell me more about him. And he would, instead of telling me what, what what he knew, what little he knew, or what tons he knew, he would give me a book, or the encyclopedia, old Encyclopedia Britannica, and I would learn on my own, and it was rewarding for that. So I think he really, he and my mother both, spurred that that curiosity, and that it was not embarrassing to say you didn't know something because by saying that you might learn something. Yeah. Wow. You're like that too. Yeah. You I, are. I am. You are. I think you just put it into way better words than I ever would have. Well, I you're just not think as of it as, as like ADD. <laughs> um, you can but... refine your feelings over the next <laughs> decade, please. Thank you. I will. Um, and, okay, so then moving on um, into uh, kind of the early, or the, you know, late teens, early 20s, that kind of adolescent moving into adulthood. Um, what would you say arose from maybe pop culture or something that really, or past writers that really influenced your exact writing style or the way you put and I've together. always been you know it's the classic you know I'll tell you something I read you know as every teenager on the planet has Catcher in the Rye mm -hmm. when I was young and I said wow this is a cool book and I want to live like this and I reread it like five <laughs> years ago and I don't, I don't think much of it I, I really don't yeah, I don't think much like of it kind of a whiny kid <laughs> you know one of these seminal books uh, at Latin school you had to do in classic classic kind of English prep school or University of Chicago fashion, a lengthy paper is your senior paper. And you could pick any topic in the world. And I picked a relatively then obscure writer who was a friend of my father's named Tom Wolfe. Uh, the Tom Wolfe. Whoa, of, electric Kool-Aid acid test? Yeah, yeah. I wrote a review on that in my journalism class. Did you? I wrote year. a whole paper on it. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, and Latin <laughs> was such a weird place that when I made the proposal and gave the paper to the two senior advisors, one of them said, uh, they thought it was a, a, a drug addle. They said, uh, you know, Mr. Cogan, this is, we thought it was about Thomas Wolfe. And I go, you mean look home at Angel Knight? No, this is Tom Wolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was basically about uh, the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Yeah. And this new form of writing. Gonzo journalism. And I got to because he was a friend of my father's interview, Tom. Wow. And uh, he's kind of stayed in touch over the decades. Oh, that's cool. And that book was terribly influential. 
not so much. It, it was a very compelling style. There's no question about it. I mean, uh, it, the narrative drive of of his early stuff uh, is really something, and it's uh, it's addictive. It is. It's addictive. You can't but put also, it down. the story was addictive. Yeah. I mean, who are these merry pranksters? <laughs> right. What are you kidding? Because I wasn't quite old enough. But it also, you balance that with, <clears throat> with, you know, sort of my experience is my first real job, other than taking bottles back for you know two cents or whatever we got for bottles, was uh, working in uh, during the Democratic convention, nineteen sixty-eight. I was sixteen working in the basement of the Conrad Hilton, which was the epicenter of all of the protests. Mm -hmm. And I was only 16, and I was standing there the night of the um, riots, standing inside the Hilton behind a police line that was guarding the delegates inside, and I was looking across the street and seeing people who looked very much, very much like me, a couple years older, getting the shit kicked out of them and getting their heads smashed in. And I thought, wow, something is happening here, as the song goes. Yeah. And so that kind of fired my, uh, my certainly my interest in contemporary politics ever, ever, that there was something happening in the world that, that as a kid at the Latin school, you know, playing football and going on dates with Margie Schaller, uh, I wasn't Shout expo- out Margie. I wasn't exposed to, uh, and it, uh, and that led me to you know Kerouac and Ginsburg and a lot of other so-called Hunter S. Thompson, beat, the beat writers. Yeah, no, you know I never fell for Thompson as hard as uh, as a lot of people did. Yeah. I I, uh, I was more a Tom Wolfe guy. Mm-hmm. I thought you know, Hunter Thompson was, unden- was undeniably undeniably talented but I, I think I saw him fritter away his talent yeah. uh, really frittered away by abusing uh, himself he's not the first writer to 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 uh, exercise self-abuse yeah. but, but he's one that uh, that I think is deified you know when you hear a lot about these writers Lisa there are a lot of people who never read them you know they become heroic because of their celebrity and not because of their words you know, even now there are a lot of people who have deep, deep, unbelievable affection for Nelson Algren, you know, the, the poet of the down-and-out Chicago. And, you know, when I talk to them, they, they've never read any of him. It's, it's weird. Yeah. It's where the, the celebrity author is a product of my, of my lifetime, and right. I don't care for it at all. So I started to be influenced by people— one of the great influences in my life are short story writers like John Cheever mm-hmm. and especially the incredibly underrated John O'Hara, who probably published more stories in The New Yorker than, yeah, arguably more short stories than any other writer. What were some of the, the big <coughs> ones by him? Well, I mean, some of his famous novels, his first novel, which was called Appointment in, you know, I should be, I have no notes here. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, which is called Appointment in Samara is one of, it was a was an incredibly moving book about a place, you know, it was like an East Coast socialite kind of thing mm-hmm. that, that I knew nothing about in a different time in the 30s. Uh, his most famous book, arguably, is was Butterfield 8. Mm-hmm which was about a uh, high-class New York prostitute, also of an era that I'd, in which I did not live. But his short stories, which you can find in number, there, there are collections of John O'Hara's short stories, 
and he's really faded from the sort of pantheon of American writers because he was a very difficult guy. He was a terrible drunk, but he was unbelievably prolific. And anybody out there who is listening and says, well, I'm thinking of writing short stories, should consult the works of John O'Hara. And then also John Cheever, another terrible, terrible alcoholic. Yeah. But these two guys had a deep, I do not write short stories, I've tried, it's hard. It's hard. It is very hard. Uh, those two guys were deep, deep, and continue to be deep. In, they're clear, they are incredibly observant of the world around them, which I think any writer needs to be. And uh, they are too, kind of like narcotics. You start reading O'Hara short stories, it's hard to stop. What's the subject stop. matter? Is it a lot of the East Coast? High, uh, upper yeah, class? it's like in New York. Yeah. New York in the 40s, 50s. A lot of it. Same with Cheever. Cheever is more suburban, mm-hmm. uh, kind of angst and troubles, but very, both incredibly insightful into human beings, which is what we all, writers or not writers, that's what we all try to do. That's yeah. what you do on a. Suppose that's what you do on a first date. You want to know more about this person. It's, again, all about curiosity. Also, another writer, I'll just put one more guy in that pantheon, Erwin Shaw, who uh, became a famous, famous and very wealthy novelist by writing what turned into one of the first mini-series out there, Rich Man, Poor Man, uh, incredibly successful uh, writer also a novel called The Young Lions but he was he wrote if you were going to read any two short stories that I might mention on the Lise Graham show Lise FM read Erwin Shaw's The Girls in Their Summer Dresses and listen to a relationship fall apart in four pages Wow! or read another story called The 80 Yard Run which is about a man who returns to the scene of a long ago football triumph and he's and you'll get the sense of what he's lost that they're two of the greatest short stories ever written it is amazing when you read a good short story it's like how how do they fit it in to that but we could say that you write short stories for the tribune i mean your stories aren't more than what you're saying i make this stuff up what (laughs) I wrote a story today. I wrote a story today. It's so funny. Fake news. You mentioned this the day we're uh, doing this show. In the paper today was a story about the remaking of the gravesite of the Cub great Ernie Banks at Graceland Cemetery, I saw which that. is which is a place that I would recommend anybody in Chicago wander. It a is cemetery. Liv- yes, it is living history. It is like an outdoor art gallery. Huh. It is not only beautiful, but it is evocative of. I have taken my daughter Fiona there virtually every year since she's uh was born 13 years ago and it's a history lesson she'll say dad is that marshall the marshall field who used to own the marshall fields sorry yeah is that so and so is that so tell me a story about them and the monuments i mean some of them are are glorious they're like little houses wow so i wrote this story about ernie banks the cubs great getting a new kind of monument one of the only monuments that no one's going to like want to tear down over yeah. the next five years, right. and got a incredibly vicious note from someone email 
Like he was nothing but an Uncle Tom, step and fetch it, blah, blah, blah. But more to the point, he goes, you know, in Graceland, you know, fuck Elvis Presley. And I'm thinking, you don't even know, Jesus, what kind of you know, <laughs> level of comprehension? Who are you? What kind of level of comprehension do you have that you think Ernie Banks is was given a memorial at Graceland in Memphis? Good Lord. Yeah, it was a frightening thing. Was that a Facebook I know it was a direct email with oh about. My God. I've never seen so many misspellings, and and I'm a bad speller, but so many misspellings, and it was just the attitude, the attitude of this guy, but also thinking that this story was set somehow in Memphis, rather than Chicago. <laughs> it's like Jesus. Well, I, I'm not plain nice enough. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say that I write uh, stories like they are short, and you know, nine hundred, a thousand, fifteen hundred words, but. They do not compare with the works of Irwin Shaw, uh, John O'Hara, or John Cheever. Well, I guess I'll have to check. And there are out. a lot of great. I mean, Margaret Atwood's a great writer. There are a lot of uh, of uh, Alice Munro is a great short story writer. Donald Bartome. It's just today when we're talking, it's those three old guys yeah. that uh, that I can uh, say were were serious serious influences. Hemingway so, was too, I guess, oh yeah. but I've I've turned on Hemingway. Oh, really? Why? Oh, I've read too many biographies of him, and just he was he was a shithead, frankly, uh, a misogynist. He was not a good friend. He was a cruel friend, and uh, yes, he did create this style, and yes, some of his work, and yes, some of his short stories, The Killers, especially, uh, are great works. Uh, he was just he was a prick. Yeah. I guess it's like I took. And not that not that you have to be a great guy, right? But, but his abuse of wives yeah. and wives yeah, and wives, hard. women and friends is really something. And and you know, in rereading him, uh, you kind of can see through some of his lesser works. Some of it was mm. shtick. Yeah, it was just kind of hyped. Well, I, I took this um, Woody Allen class in high school or college, um, and of course, we had this whole week devoted to separating the art from the artist um and all of that and it it taught me a lot i think i mean i've always been a woody allen fan and i you know so i, I try to just turn a blind yeah, eye but it's yeah. like what at what point can you really get away with ignoring that? a great story about woody allen my father in 1963 my father started the first arts and entertainment section in any newspaper in the country a f- fabulous thing called panorama based on a 40-page memo that he had sent to his friend and boss Marshall Field IV, arguing that culture and entertainment were indeed part of the fabric of life. And no one had thought of it. Before 60, movie critics had fake names, and no one took any, even took, no one took movies seriously. (coughs) So he, uh, Marshall said, yeah, okay, start this thing, Herman. And he he had John O'Hara write a column for it, but by that time, John O'Hara had turned into a right-wing radical, so he didn't write for it. Mm-hmm. But one day, an old press agent, as we used to call public relations people, brought into Herman, my father Herman Kogan's office, a young man who was appearing at Mr. Kelly's and told him that this young man uh, also liked to write. And so my father said, well, okay, but let's see, you want to write a, a piece? $50, Woody Allen. First byline. Here? Yeah, in Panorama. First it, byline? Yeah. What the hell? Yeah, it could He might have written somewhere in New York, but there oh were those kind of opportunities. And my father was very, very good about, 
you know, giving those kind of opportunities to any. He also, Which you are too. You know, he also, Roger Ebert's first, Roger Ebert was a, uh, who eventually became very good, very, very good friends with my yeah. parents and with me. Uh, Roger was a student at the University of Illinois, mm-hmm. the editor of the Daily yes. Illini, and Brendan Bayon, the great legendary drunk uh, poet playwright, novelist playwright, uh, had died. And Roger, as a senior in college, dashed off a you know five, six hundred word appreciation of Bayon and just sent it to my father, cold. And just my father in the mail. Yeah, I guess it would have been. That's how you do it in those yeah. days. Yes, children, there was an age before email. <laughs> he sent it up with a horse and rider from uh, Champaign-Urbana. From Champaign-Urbana. Yes, uh, it was a horse came up and delivered it to the Daily News. Uh, he paid Roger, I think, 25 bucks for it, and that was, without any question, Roger Ebert's first newspaper byline. Wow. But it was a great, I mean, it was, it was a section that, that celebrated the arts and entertainment. Yeah. And Panorama, in its way, was a huge influence on the young Rick Kogan, too. T- tell me because, more about it. Well, because when I got my first job at the Daily News, many, many, many years, my father started Panorama, then he left to work for Marshall Field when Marshall Field bought a TV station, uh-huh. won a few Emmys there, then came back to the newspaper business, and then eventually retired. And two days after he retired, I was hired on, from the Daily News to be on the staff of Panorama. Oh, yeah, I know. that's so sweet. Yeah, it was. It's, oh, a, it's kind of a oh, kind of a there. full circle kind yeah. of thing. And then the Daily News sadly folded six months later. Right. But, but uh, it, it, that was something. Yeah, That no was something. Kidding. Yeah. Um, so we're there. Uh, okay. So what was the timeline of you? I know you drove cabs. Yes. And then lifeguard, cab driver, receiving clerk. Wow. Renaissance uh, man. Worked for a, drove a truck for a, I think it's no longer here, a place called Commercial Light Company. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, the classic proletariat jacket copy. How did your parents feel about that? That kind of stint? Well, they weren't happy when I dropped out of college, but they were. Su- my father was always supportive of me. When I decided, <laughs> arrogantly at 17, that I said, well, I don't think I'm going to learn anything in college. My father, you know, who was a Phi Beta Kappa during the Depression, three years at the University of Chicago, working midnight to eight at the city oh news bureau, could have guilt tripped <laughs> me back to college in a minute. Right. Said, well, what do you want to do? And I, I did not think it would ever get to that point. And that's when I said, brilliantly, well, Dad, I think I, I'd like to drive a cab. And he goes, okay, <laughs> okay. And I did for a couple of years. I mean, that's one way to teach you that that's not what you want to do. For me? <laughs> that's one way to teach you. Yeah, I thought, well, I thought I might as well try to make the best of it and get novel ideas from the passengers. And I would say, uh, Oh. You'd get in, and an attractive young woman like you would get in and say, yes, I'm going to please take me to LaSalle Street Station. I'd go, well, why are you going there? Thinking I would get this huge, well, I've right. left my husband. I mean, most of it was, we just shut, shut up and drive. <laughs> shut up and drive. I'm saying, well, that's not the basis of that's a good the name short story. That's the name of a book. <laughs> yeah, that's not the basis of a good short story. Yeah, well. Yes, the first novel by Rick Cogan, Shut, <laughs> shut up, up and, and Drive. drive. <laughs> Uh, and then I saved up some money. I was a lifeguard for a while during that whole stint. Saved at some money. At the lake? or in a, No, at the 1110 Lakeshore Drive on the 40th floor wow. swimming pool where you couldn't have drowned if you tried. <laughs> it was 
if anybody was drowning, I could have reached down and just pulled Grabbed them out. Him. And what I did is I spent, it was a great job, because I spent my, uh, there were a lot of sort of 30-something young moms living in the building, and they would ask, they would ask my advice about what they should be reading. And it was great. I wow. mean, it, it was great. That's I can't cool. remember if it was a dollar an hour or some insane oh my gosh. price. A dollar and a quarter an hour, I don't remember. But, you know, right across from Oak Street Beach and a nice brand new high rise at the time. And I saved up some money and decided that I would play at being Hemingway and uh, move to Europe for a while. Did you? Yeah. I didn't know that. You don't you, know any of this? Where do we go? talk? What do we talk about when we do Me? our show? <laughs> oh, our show? Yeah. <coughs> well, I'm learning. So where'd you go? <laughs> it's a tortured kind of route. I... Uh, flew to England because they spoke English yes. and uh, I didn't know where I was going to wind up but I thought I had enough money I had $1,500 and thought I had enough money for in, a year in like the bank or did you have it in I had it in cash, in, in cash or traveler's checks yeah. or some, some I had it with me yeah uh, <sighs> dangerous because they had a thing called here's a great thing they had a some airline whatever it was had a youth fair ticket and so you could fly round trip in the course of a year from Chicago to anywhere in Europe and back for $100. Youth fair. Youth fair. I don't know whatever happened to it. That's amazing. Yeah, if it happened now, no one would be living here. Right. Uh, so I flew to England, unbelievably freaked out. I had a culture shock in London because it just it was, I mean, it's not unlike Chicago, it's just bigger. Yeah. Wound up in Dover, made friends with a couple people who owned a little tiny B&B there. Uh, bought their car for two hundred dollars. No way. Yes. Way. What kind of car? I don't remember. I, uh, small. One on the wrong side small of the road. Wrong side of the car. Small and broken down. Is Good. What I can tell you. Uh, so that so you have bought a car, but never in the across, United States. Yes, <laughs> not in the United States. Yes, not in the U.S. Took the car over to France and went to visit a. Uh, I can't remember her name. A waitress that I had known in Chicago named Arlene Greenberg, who was living with some guy uh, at at Cease Rue Canet, chicken, and so stayed with them for a month or so. Mm-hmm. And that was Paris. Yeah. How did you like it? I loved it. Still, what time of year was still it? Love Summer. It. Or? it was fall. fall. It was fall. Oh. It was raining all the time. I loved it. Yeah. How it I should be. I still love it. Yeah. I still love it. Chicago I love most of all, but Paris is a close second. Mm -hmm. And then drove down to, here's my huge mistake, (laughs) then drove down, I thought, okay, the cheapest countries here are Greece or Spain. So I will drive down to the Riviera, see what that looks like. Uh, In in, uh, Monte Carlo, I had one khaki suit that I brought, and I went in the casino, and I thought, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. I, I, I know what my future is. I'm going to win enough money here to never have to go back to America. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I bet $500 on red in roulette because I didn't know how to play any other game. I knew how to play poker, but nothing else. And lost. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, and I'm shit. like, wait a minute. Now I've only got five. How can I live here for nine more months with $500 or $700? I was incredibly depressed. I looked at a oh map. God. And said, you're by yourself. Oh, yeah. said, oh, Spain looks so much closer. So drove to Spain. The car was acting up 
all the way, and the the drive from from Barcelona to Madrid is unbelievably was then, it still is, I'm sure, unbelievably bleak. Yeah. I get to Madrid. Rush another, hour traffic another, uh, on the Rue Jose Antonio, the six-lane street in the middle of the city. The car just conks out, and I grab my suitcase and leave it there. Really? Yeah. And I was pretty sure I was going to go back to United. I had, you know, 600 bucks. I told everybody, see you next year, big heroic traveler. So. uh, (laughs) Well, that's where Hemingway was a lot, though, Madrid. Yeah. Did you find his places where. No, I didn't care, though. (laughs) No, I was was too depressed to do anything. Oh, man. Uh, I went to some weird, like, tiki bar there, and for dinner, this is some memory, and all around. The room were old men kissing young blondes. I remember that so distinctly. It's like and I'm a like, Hitchcock scene. Yeah, I said, I'm like lost here. Yeah, it was uh, Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> and Tippy Hedren. Uh, <laughs> so then I got on a train and took it down to Malaga, which is on the southern coast, mm-hmm. on the coast of Del Sol, and got off the train and then started idiotically walking. Well, I didn't know anything. Walking east, which is like, it would be like getting to Chicago and then walking through Gary. Oh, God. And oh, I thought, this no. is not, what am I doing? Oh, geez. I'm going home. Like, where's a big city? I need to use, like, where's my, I, I kept fingering my youth fair ticket in my pocket. <laughs> oh. So then got on a bus going west. And it was raining. Of course it was raining. Yeah. Uh, and woke up in the morning as the bus was coming down a hill into a little town that hugged the coast. A two-lane highway and beach on one side and these little buildings on the other and got off the bus and just walked around and went in there was a, I had seen enough to know that there was a kind of chain of condo buildings or something on the coast called Sofico which means I spoke no Spanish when I got there which means uh, seahorse okay and so there was one that was all I've romanticized it it was a four-story little building with a seahorse logo that was like broken neon wasn't working <laughs> and i i imagine this was the first sofico place and they this is where they'd started and now they're a big chance so i walked in there and inquired about rooms and i was talking to a guy who barely spoke english and i barely spoke spanish and somehow over the course of uh, about an hour we determined that I could rent a room there for $40 a month. And he took <laughs> me up God. to the room, and it was on the second floor of this building with a balcony and a kitchen and a beautiful living room that looked out on the Mediterranean. Oh and the view from the window at about a 45-degree angle right was the Rock of Gibraltar. So I kept saying, $40, $40, $40. He said, yes. We took out these papers, and I, I did have traveler's checks. I wrote him $480 in traveler's checks for a year's rent. Right. Figuring, well, I have 120 left, and if, I, if this goes, I can always ask my parents because I have a place to stay. Yeah, but. And that's where I stayed. There's no but? There's no but. There's oh no but. Was that amazing? Yeah, it was I mean, amazing. Obviously. It was amazing. It was a town called Estepona, uh-huh. which was. Uh, Franco was still alive, and a lot of people had moved to Estepona on the sort of 
not unreasonable assumption that he was going to die soon. And this is there would be an incredible tourist boom there. They were hanging on. I got a uh, kind of job tending bar and helping out at a place called La Manzana, which means the apple, and getting free food too, and reading books that they had on their bookshelf. And then in the winter, in November to November to March, it's bleak. I mean, there's nobody, and it's nobody dark around. All the time, just probably. red. Yeah, it's 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 bleak. Just red and wrote short stories and finally, and sold a travel story to, of all places, the Chicago Tribune. Yeah. And wow. it paid, oh, what was it? It was like $80. And so I was thought, that by mail? How did you do oh, yeah. that? Oh, yeah. So you just, like, sent it and then waited a month or whatever? Yep. Yep. I sent it to my father and said, Dad, oh, yeah, I know good. you don't want to, uh, you can't print this because of this weird nepotism rule, but I think right. it was a pretty good story. And, uh, Maybe you could see if the Tribune would want to print it. And they paid me $80. Hey. Two months' rent. Oh I know. Two months' rent. And $80, $80 in Estee Plano would go a long I wasn't, oh, pay, yeah. I wasn't paying for meals. I had no, virtually no expenses. I could buy oh, a week's God. worth of groceries for like $10. <laughs> it was a great time, but eventually uh, the money did run out. Yeah. As but I does. have fond, fond, fond memories of that little town. Tell me another story from there. From there? Yeah. A friend that you made or? Well, I used to, I, I also used to go to Morocco a lot because uh, there were a lot of, uh, you know, again, these sort of 30-something moms who seemed to follow me around my whole life. <laughs> uh, they would come there with their kids and the moms would want to go to Morocco and I got pretty adept at being able to figure out how to go to Morocco uh, and so I did a lot of that too, but mostly what I what I truly remember is uh, is you know with uh, having you know Spanish language and Spanish music stations on and writing all the time. I mean, I really did write an incredible amount because there really wasn't you know there, there were no real bars or a real social life or or people my age or Americans my age there. So it was kind of isolating. I mean, the people at the restaurant were very nice to me, but they, we weren't, we weren't pal around buddies. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, uh, it was a huge, I wrote some lousy stuff, but I also wrote some good stuff too. And it was, it was an interesting kind of year to just plow through fiction. Yeah. Fiction mostly, except for the lucrative Tribune, uh, travel story oh, but it was great that. and the also archives. you know and also part of it was just getting along on your own mm -hmm. and you, you, you know there's no one there to help you and there was uh and I was 20 you know I wasn't like 30 yeah and it was uh it, it showed me I could be sort of self-sufficient and I, and I didn't really have to worry about yeah life wow Well, we're back, so uh, we'll just...
pick it up. I don't really know where I were, but whatever. I think I was I was swimming back from Europe to okay. come back to the United yes. States. I ran out of money. Yes. Oh, you got the apartment in Spain. Okay, so let's let's see. And I was asking you about somebody that you met. Did you tell me about like a person that you befriended or a job you had? I befriended a lot of uh, cute thirty-something women who, right. uh, who wanted to visit Morocco and. Uh, like, uh, yes, could you, do you know anything about Morocco? Could you take me over? And I go, oh, yeah, sure. And so they would just, you know, the, it's not hardly a gigolo, but they would pay for my my boat fare to Morocco. And a I'd Mrs. Show them Robinson around. situation. Sort of, yeah, sort of, sort of. <laughs> they weren't that old, though. They okay. weren't that old. Because I was very, and I was, and uh, Benjamin Braddock, and, and uh, the graduate was a little older than I was at oh the time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There oh was no. Gosh. Elaine. No. Okay. <laughs> Gosh, no. I love that movie. Um, okay. Well, so, so I fan- finally ran out of money in uh, in Spain and had to come back, and sort of really had the writing bug because that's what I was doing over there. I was writing short stories, so I went to. Uh, I remember my father was great friends with the guy who started Columbia College, and Columbia College was in its early days there. And he said, "No, it's a very creative place. Why don't you go there?" And I went, and I took one class, and what class? one class, one day, was my stay <laughs> at uh, which one was it? Columbia College. It was like reviews and criticism, and everybody in the class wanted to be a critic on television. And I thought, this, I'm not going to learn anything here, so I left and just started freelance writing. Wow! Got offered a job at the. Uh, Chicago Daily News, because there was a guy there named uh, M.W. Newman, who I still maintain is the among the top five newspaper writers in the history of this town, which is really saying something. Mike Rico always thought Bill was the best writer-reporter he'd ever known. And Bill offered me the job of television critic when I was 23 years old. And I thought, oh, my God, this is great. I'm making you know $20 a week driving a cab and being a bum. Uh, they could not hire me because my father worked for the Sun-Times. And none of us, not Bill, not my dad, not I, knew there was a nepotism rule. And it was heartbreaking. It Aww. was heartbreaking. Because I think I took my then-girlfriend out to dinner. And we Celebrate. spent like you know, spent all the money we had, like $100. Because I was going to have a real job, and then it didn't materialize. So I continued to freelance write, mostly for the Sun-Times. And then two days after my father retired, uh, the Daily News hired me. Wow. Yeah, well, I was right. So well, I was right. Okay, so then, so we're moving, so we've moved into the... the yeah, full-time job. Full-time job. We moved job. into Kogan as a full-time yes. job at 26 um, years old. Hey, at this yeah. rate. Well. Hey, you got the, you have years to go before <laughs> you need a full-time job. Good. Maybe I'll pick up the <laughs> cab By driving. then, this podcast will be world famous. It will. And you'll be making millions in advertising. And, and I'll, you won't need, this will I'll be your you full-time on a trip. job. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, back to, uh, where was it in Spain? Estepona. Estepona. Um, so, okay, so what would you say professionally your influence, a, a big, you know, you mentioned that, who was it that you just mentioned, writer? M.W. M-W. Bill Newman. Uh, I was lucky to be a young man in an era when there were still great newspaper writers. I mean, among my biggest influences was Bill. Also, my father was a great newspaper writer. Richard Christensen, the long-time, long-time theater critic here, was on the staff of Panorama when I joined it for those last six months of the Daily News. And, of course, Royko. 
and of course Mike Royko. And I, I was able to kind of insinuate myself into that crowd, even though I was 26, uh, because they all knew and respected my father. So there wasn't, you know, they would give me a break if I had been an asshole or couldn't drink. Uh, I would have been out quickly, but I wasn't. <laughs> and that's, that was a great, great special bonus to my, they all knew and respected my father. And so we're not immediately dismissive of this young kid who, well, Royko didn't go to college either, but uh, this young kid, and uh, and they were mentors of a sort. You know, in those days in the business, unlike now where everybody gets in the business and thinks they should immediately have a column or they should immediately be doing something more, that was still the era when the, the training that you got as a young reporter was really important to you, and it was not... So covering a fire was not somehow demeaning, and writing an obituary was not somehow some entry-level thing. You know, we've, we've, you haven't, but you are now living in an era where it's kind of like celebrity journalism, and you have to be on all these different platforms. And Your you have brand. To be, you know, and how many hits do you get? You know, I always have written stories for the readers. You know, they're still... When I started the Tribune, there were probably a million, 1.2 million readers on the weekends. I don't know who they are. There was no Facebook. I am assuming that hundreds of thousands of those, or even tens of thousands, would read what I wrote. And that was that. Now this sort of spreading yourself across multi-platforms, even though I do do Facebook. And I am right now, just before the show began, you were teaching me about Instagram. <laughs> Uh, which because I'm bored with Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I know, I'm it's totally boring. bored with uh, with Facebook and uh, and Twitter, frankly. And I think it gives kind of a false sense of of who you're engaging with. I still believe that people, and there's still you know roughly four hundred thousand people who read the Tribune, that these people open thing and they read it the old fashioned way. Geez, sorry. Okay, my mom, last night, she yeah. gets home from work, has a glass of wine. I'm in there making dinner. Uh, she ha- also has the, the news on to watch Harvey. Oh, sure. Who doesn't? Sure. I know. Horrifying. Horrifying, but like ABC, right? So it's just, it sounds like a reality show. I'm yeah. not looking, and I'm just like chopping things, and it's like all this dramatic well, music. Well, one of the problems as, this... a, as a former TV critic, which I did for the Tribune after the Daily News and after the Sun-Times, but what troubles me about the coverage of Harvey is there's really no context. It's like, okay, I get that uh, that animals are in trouble down here, but don't try to falsely tug my heartstring by continually showing me pictures of, of stranded dogs. I, I would rather see a big overview. I would I rather know, know more I about know. about the recovery right. than I would about a specific thing. It's it's cheap television, and it's and it's and it's so highly produced. It's ridiculous. Oh I yeah, mean, sure it is. It's sounded, network, my, my dad it's network walked, TV, right? I know, which I never watched, so I guess that's why I'm like all shocked about it. But yeah. I know that's just how it is. My my dad walked in the room. He was watching something Nova on PBS. In the sure, good for room. him. He walks into the kitchen and he looks at me. He's like, "Oh my god, it's yeah. like, a, it's like yeah. a movie that they're showing." Well, it's because those images get the blood flowing. And, I mean, yeah. it's the same thing. Yeah. When you know, why do they need a local? If there is a shooting in Hazelcrest, as there was a couple of days ago. Uh, some guys tried to rip off an off-duty policeman. Do, do you really need the reporter to be standing in front of the Hazelcrest Police Department with nothing going on? 
what's the point? Ooh, caution tape. <laughs> yeah, well, but in some cases, not even I know, that. I know. And you know, half a, the problem with most TV reporters is they helicopter in. They don't know anything about Hazel. They couldn't find Hazel Crest with a map, but they helicopter in, and boy, let's go with a live shot. Let's do a live shot. And uh, it, yeah. it's it's cheap, it's and I think that's one of the reasons that, that a lot of people are turning off. You know, the percentage of people who watch network news is shrinking. Yeah. Well, anyway, okay. So I'm yes. sitting in the, but my mom during the commercial. Well, she had the whole paper in front of her, and she does. She reads it out loud. You know, to me. Good. It's great. I Good. mean, it's funny. I was thinking, while we while she was doing that, you know, it's like all these stories. One of them was yours, of course. Um, and she's. Well, you know what I should do for your mom is write about Jim Post every week. Or yes. Write about the your mom is a or huge Michael fan Miles. of huge fan of the folk scene in yes. Chicago in the seventies and eighties. They were neighbors. Yep, Corky Siegel, Bonnie Cola, oh, yeah. Jim Post. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I could hook yes, your mom. And, I mean, uh, she already loves it. The Ernie Bank stuff was good enough. Oh, her. that's good. Um, anyway, but anyway, I was thinking about my influences, which. At episode 100, apparently Tom Hush is planning on interviewing me. So Good, you about should. Because um, I'd be curious because yeah. you're a different generation. I have no idea what they would be. I mean, they'd all probably. Do you read be the newspaper? Honestly, I. Of course, read honestly, it. no lie to me. Uh-huh. No lie. Every page, every word. No, I. Um, read I it should. I read. I read what my mom clips out for me. Mm-hmm. And I live. You know, I live yeah. with my parents and. Um, well, see, what's happened is the habit has been broken. Yeah. I mean, the habit I of picking up that paper. I think I'd love it if I... I do, too. If I'm on a train I, and I see one and I don't have anything else to read, I'll read it. Yeah. Or a coffee shop. Yeah. And, and I do enjoy it. Well, I think what I struggle with is actually holding a newspaper, which is funny to me because I'm like, is there I don't know whole... how to fold this thing. Exactly. How do you fold it? I get it? so it's frustrated. Yes. It's getting ink on my And I was thinking, hands. Rick must be so good at holding newspapers. I'm not bad. I'm how not do you bad. do it? What's your... Strategy. How do I do it? Well, yeah, but like Look, all you people out there, if you ever want to hold a newspaper, uh, you can learn on your own. You really can. YouTube, can't. Rick yeah, will put you know, up a video like, for you. It's like, I'm not going to teach you how to chew gum, and right, I'm not going to teach sorry, you how to walk and question. chew gum at the same time. It wasn't a stupid question. Okay, wait. Let's get back to the interview. Yes. What makes a good newspaper writer? Curiosity. Uh, I really do believe that I keep uh, that maybe the theme of this whole show the other thing that makes a good newspaper writer by curiosity i mean going out of the office there is do not rely and this sounds so old-fashioned on a telephone and certainly do not rely on the internet and do not rely on twitter and do not rely on facebook to do your reporting for you there is nothing like interviewing a person face to face Oh, it may seem so old-fashioned. Wow, what a waste of time to take a bus up to interview somebody. There is nothing like it in the world than face-to-face. I'll never forget, just as an anecdote, when I'm flipping around in my career, when I was the editor of the Tempo section, meaning the entire uh, Tribune feature section for three relatively unpleasant years, I assigned a guy... (laughs) I will not mention his name, to do a piece about, because winter was coming, about great indoor pools that families might be able to use I'm pointing Chicago. over to Intercontinental. Yeah, that's, that's where the story lies. We're here. Mm-hmm. It's 40 steps from here. Guy comes back and writes a story saying that uh, one of the great things is the enclosed rooftop pool at the Intercontinental perfectly family-friendly, it's Olympic-sized, blah, 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 blah. And I look at him and I go, uh, why do you say this is a, a, 
enclosed uh, rooftop pool. Well, it is. It's really beautiful. And I said, you know, I, I learned to, not only did I learn to swim in that pool, I still go to that pool, and it's on the 11th floor. And that's where Fiona's 13th birthday is going to be. That's right. It was there it already. Was, yeah, yeah I know. this was a few years ago. <laughs> I may not even have had Fiona then. <laughs> if I ever have a daughter, her birthday will be at that pool. And he goes, well, uh, I said, where did you get this information? Well, I saw the pool. And I said, first of all, now you're lying to me. This is ridiculous. Glenn was his name. Glenn, it's 40 feet from here. You got all your information online or from old clips? Yeah, I'm sorry. I guess I did. That's one of the most abject examples of that. Is he still there? Huh? Oh, no. Long gone. Not for that one specific reason, but that's a telling yeah. thing about someone's uh, curiosity. He says it's one of the greatest pools in the world, and you can't walk 40. And it is one of the greatest pools in the world, and you can't walk 40 feet to see it? That's one of the problems. And I think that in this... Uh, you know, increasingly icy communicative age where it's so easy to look stuff up on the internet that you slough off. And you don't, most of the stuff that comes out of Rahm Emanuel's office is all secondhand. You know, it's like he said in an email, and if, if you shouldn't even quote it if you can say it. You should see these people face to face. That's another tip if anybody wants to use it for journalism and to be curious see what someone looks like when they say something to you absolutely yeah i agree um and thank you for that well that's uh, why i like to have people in the radio studio as opposed to on the phone, on the phone. hey I, totally and it may make for a longer interview but i think in a longer interview you get more you do. As we're proving right That's now. right. You get tons. You get the inside story. Yeah, and it's just an experience. And luckily we work here in this beautiful building, which we have which to Which we appreciate. will not work here long. I know. Yeah. It's sad and terrifying. But, yeah, it's a nice... People love it coming yeah, in. Yeah, sure. If they can. Absolutely. Um, well, it's, a, you know, it's a, still a relatively big station, and they like the whole notion of yeah. coming in and WGN. seeing what it looks like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've listened to WGN since I was a child. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, well, that's a great great uh, little segue, if you will. Um, when did your radio career begin? Well, the so-called radio career began when I was at the Sun Times. After I, the Daily News folded on March 4th, 1978, and I went to the Sun-Times, and I was covering movies and doing some investigative reporting and a lot of theater and t- and then t- and some TV. And I was asked by WBBM Radio if I would like to be an on-air critic for WBBM. Based on nothing, I didn't ask them. And I said, sure, what does that mean? Well, we'd like you to write you know, twice a week to do two-minute little segments. Glenna Seiss, the theater critic of the of the Sun-Times, was also an on-air critic there. And I thought, naive, so naive, so naive. I thought, oh, my God, this is, it's like the media. I'm going to make so much money, it's not even funny. <clears throat> so I, uh, <laughs> I didn't do it for the money. I said, yeah, this would be an interesting writing challenge to write two-minute pieces about nightclubs and, uh, and television. So I did it. And uh, I'll never forget, I joined AFTRA, and I've been a member of AFTRA ever since. Joined AFTRA for like $600 to join. And I got my first check from uh, WBBM, and it was like for $3.42. $3? Yes, 3 
okay. dot 42. Oh, my God. And I went to Burling Hines, who was the, or Denise Hines, his wife, who was then, had hired me. and go, well, there's something, like a bunch of zeros missing here. <laughs> there's something certainly wrong here. She goes, no, 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 Rick, we pay you $5 a, a show. And then that was minus tax. Yeah. Are and I said, $5 is going to take me like five years to, to pay, pay off, off this after thing. Oh, and I did, it for, I did it for about How a year. How old were you then? 26, 27 maybe. And then I did it for about a year, and then they stopped having on-air contributors. And I thought, okay, that was fun. And never thought about radio again. I didn't have this wow, I should really be on radio, though I knew there was some serious money in it because these are the days when, you know, Steve and Gary and everybody's spouting off. The next time I got a chance to be on the radio, this guy Mitch Rosen, who was running, uh, was it The Score or ESPN Radio? I think he was running The Score. He, and I'd known him for years, said, how, how about you and Richard Roper, who I didn't know that well, who's done the movie critic at the... Sun-Times, and a columnist, regular columnist at the Sun-Times, before he paired up with Roger Ebert, uh, how would you guys like to have a show? I said, well, I don't, I don't even know Richard Mitchin. Well, we'd pair you with somebody else, and I'm thinking maybe Kathy Voltmer of WXRT, and we'll call it Media Creatures. And I said, okay, so I said, well, let's give it a whirl. So I went over, we did a test. We just sat there for an hour and talked about stuff, and Richard's quite opinionated and quite funny and and clever and knows a lot and Kathy is a just a doll and she sort of steered the trip as we interviewed people and so we had a 4 hour daily show 4 hour on WMVP from four? 10 10 in the morning yep 10 to 2 10 to 2 and were you still at the trip yep yeah it was hard it was hard yeah. four, four hours of radio i mean 2 hours of radio every day is hard <clears throat> and if you do it right, one hour of radio should be hard yeah. if you do it right. Yes. Uh, so we did that for six months, and ratings went crazy. They were fantastic until the score was, WMVP was sold. And so we walked away from that. And then again, I didn't say, you know, Richard had other shows, and Kathy was a radio person. I just thought it was like an interesting kind of thing before I had done that I was before I got hired by the Tribune I was uh, on camera on air sort of reporter slash critic for WBBM TV mm -hmm. which did pay a lot of money and I did that while I freelanced for the Tribune and that was a, what year was that then oh let's see like uh, 80 let's say 86 87 88 okay. And they would do things. They didn't know anything. They'd say, uh, Rick, do you know? <laughs> I still don't. I was supposed to do, I did. I, they, they had expanded their news from like 4 to 5 o'clock. And they had a longer kind of afternoon news. And it was when Linda McLennan, the th three of us, three grand talents started at the same time. Linda McLennan, Lester Holt, and Rick Hogan. Lester Holt? <clears throat> yeah, Lester and Linda were the anchors. And they said, we, we want you to. What's he on now? He's on. He's the anchor. He's the NBC uh, evening news oh my anchor. God. Yeah, nice man. Nice. Y'all started at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Except I was one day. I was hired to do one day a week. Fridays at four, and I'd go out with cameramen and put together these long pieces about nightclubs. I mean, it's a good, good gig. That's or about, awesome. Or about theater, uh -huh. or about any kind of arts and entertainment stuff. Your and wheelhouse. Then would, and then, yeah, and then uh, they would call every once in a while during the week and say, Rick, do you know a 
do you know someone named Jay Leno? I go, Jay Leno, yeah. <laughs> well, it, could you, like, he's going to be at the Hilton. Could you go interview him? I go, sure, I've known Jay forever, and I'd go down there. Really? Oh, yeah. And he'd make fun of my clothes. I would go, Rick, why? I've never seen you in a tie. You're usually in some stained shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but I did that, too. And so I was probably doing about two a week. Mm-hmm. And it was quite, quite lucrative combined with my writing for the Tribune. And then the Tribune, uh, I got a call offering me the full-time job as television critic for the Chicago Tribune. And I could not turn that down because I thought, first of all, it was a full-time job and I was in my mid-30s. And second of all, it uh, it was a challenging beat. And so mm-hmm. I I couldn't be on TV if I was being a TV critic. So I left, right. left the world of television. I had no idea. So yeah. how long did you, were you doing that TV thing? A couple a years? Year, a year. A year, at least a year. That sounds like fun. It was fun. It was fun. I learned a lot about how yeah. TV is made and what's, and how, and actually how difficult it is to do you know, I was trying to, you know, compressing a review of The Tempest, for Christ's sake, at the, at the Goodman Theater into a minute and a half with tape, but also how to use, it was very insightful about how to, how television works, yeah. because it's the way television still works. And writing for the ear. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was challenging, Lisa, it was challenging. Yeah, I bet. Um, and vastly different than radio, and so the, the, the thing with Richard came after that. And then, out of nowhere, Mary June Rose, who was the program director at WGN, took me to lunch and uh, said, I'd listen to you on uh, WMVP, and would you like to do a show here on Sundays? And I said, sure, sure. So I started the Sunday papers, and that lasted about, wow, uh, 15 years, maybe. And that was mornings? Yes. 6.30 to, nine to, oh. to 9. Okay. Every wow. Sunday morning. Oh, no, before that, though, I'd had... No, there was one thing before even the thing with Roper. <laughs> uh, Jim DeCastro and Larry Wirt, who ran yep. the legendary Chicago radio station, The Loop, uh-huh. which I, I admire and love these two guys, but a monkey could have run that station in yeah. the day when it was like, hi, we have John Brandmeier in the morning, Kevin Matthews uh, middays, and Stephen Gary in the afternoon was a ratings uh, juggernaut. They, I used to come on and be a guest at Kevin's show, and one day Jimmy came on and said, you know, why don't you, we should give you your own show. And I go, yeah, sure, fine, great. Yeah, you know, you're great on the radio, you're right. great on the radio. I go, okay. I go back to the paper, and then the next thing I know, someone calls on Friday, and says, man, why don't you tell me, a friend of mine, why don't you tell me you have a new radio show? I don't have a new radio show. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? Because I was in the car, man. You have a show Sunday. You have a show on Sunday morning. So I called Jimmy. I go, uh, do I have a, you weren't joking? No, I, I, I got a show. I thought you wanted to call it the Sunday papers. <laughs> I go. Is it the loop? Yeah, this is it the loop. I go, well, when is it on? Because well, it's from. Uh, well, I'm trying to remember what time it was on Sunday. Then it was like eight to eleven in the morning, okay. I think. And I go, well, where do I go? What do I do? <laughs> well, just you know, it'll That's be so about Jimmy. Oh it'll be God. about the papers. I go, okay, I'll leave a, a, a pass for you downstairs. Oh God! So I go there. 
that Sunday morning. Where was that? Seven thirty was in the Hancock building. Oh. I go there at seven thirty that Sunday morning, and I go upstairs. I have all the papers. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. It was a three-hour show. Three, it was either three or four. It was like maybe eight to noon. <clears throat> and so I'm like, okay, I go up there. There's like an 11-year-old engineer sitting up there saying, uh, are you Rick? I go, yeah. I go, what am I supposed to do? Well, you got a show. I like help engineer and play commercials and music. you have music to play? I go, no, I have no music to play. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. So, boom, the show starts. Oh and it's like, hi, this is Rick Kogan. It's a new show called The Sunday Papers. And let's see that what's I in the... That I found out about no, here. It's, a, it's worse than that. It's worse. Oh, let's no. see what's in the papers. And I'm like, I hadn't read them. I go, wow, that, that, that's an interesting story. The worst. So you just read the, it out loud? The worst half hour. I go, well, that's... I go, I'm not... I should have read these, I suppose, before I'm trying to tell you what's in the Sunday papers. And so... Uh, so then we finally took a break and I started calling friends of mine, like Dennis yeah. DeYoung of Sticks, mm-hmm. and I said, man, can you help me out here? I've got, I've got some radio show now from out of nowhere. And so that's how that started. Wow. Did that for about a year, okay. I think. And then? And then the Richard Roper thing <laughs> okay. happened. And then Mary June called and said, do you want to do something on WGN? And that's how I started. When okay. I left WGN, it was when WBZ, about two years ago, called and said, Hi, would you like to take over Steve Edwards' show called uh, called The Afternoon Shift from uh, 2 to 4 every afternoon? I said, Wow, that, I haven't done a daily show in uh, since the Roper years. I'd love to. Did that, and then they wouldn't pull the trigger on... Uh, it was supposed to be for three weeks, and then it got longer and longer, and they kept maintaining, well, we have to do an international search. And the station was screwed up. And there's just no question yeah. because you know, but when I, I said, look, to Tori Malatia, the then general manager, I said, I can't just sit here on the hook, man. This is a lot of work. Right. Two hours a day. Yeah, in addition to the Tribune. Yeah, yeah. I had a is full-time there a, job. Is a paper. non-compete that you had to like? No. 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 <clears throat> there should be. But I, yeah. with the way I broached it to the Tribune with all of my outside ventures is look there may be people listening to the loop to wgn and wbz who don't buy the tribune what's the harm right no one is going to say oh i heard rick hogan so now i don't have to buy the tribune i mean that, that that's literally what they said well you're competing with us i said i'm not competing with you so that's how i fought through that yeah. whole thing wow wow okay so so then you did the afternoon shift for how long about, was it? I'm probably six months, and it was. I mean, it, it's a, a, a lot, lot of, of prep for oh that my God, show. Yeah, a lot of prep. Like for what that was? Show. What how, do you have guests? Did you? Oh yeah. Oh my God, it was very incredibly guest heavy. Guest heavy. Did you have and uh, Justin Kaufman, who's now on this station, was in the. I don't know what his title was, a program director or something, mm-hmm. and he wanted because I started the first show with a kind of introductory essay, like who is Rick Hogan. And he's like, man, you can, can you do an essay every day about something? And I did. Oh and my it god! Was, it was a, it was, a an, it was well, it was a very, very interesting writing yeah. challenge. But it was a nightmare. I mean, I did oh it. God. I did it every. I began each show based on whether uh, an upcoming topic mm-hmm. news that was on or news of the day yeah. or yeah, it Jeez. was uh, it was nuts. It was nuts. And but and then it, total pushed, interview. Yeah. Pardon me. It pushed you, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't ever mind. Uh, you know, life should be 
filled with creative challenges. Mm-hmm. It, it really should, if yeah. you're lucky enough. Mm-hmm. I've just been lucky enough, and sometimes I would scream at the end of the day, but, you know... Worth it. It's like deadlines. I mean, newspapers don't have the same tight deadlines they once had for, certainly not for critics. But there was something oddly thrilling about having to come back from a play or a concert and sit at an empty then computer screen and have to fill it in an hour with something that you knew was going to be read by hundreds of thousands of people and, and, and was a critical opinion of something that you'd seen you know yeah. that's a that's a it's a challenge it's sort of like you know going to spain without speaking the language right you know what i mean and yeah. there's nothing wrong with <laughs> you know I, I just there's something in the same way you do i'm doing the show for you as a kind of creative challenge when you could be doing something easier or you know what least or not doing it yeah or yeah. not doing that's it true. You, to, to push yourself is uh is good. Thank you. You're well, welcome. It's one of those things that was a long time coming. Oh, wow. Yeah, a long time. Well, oh my God! Okay, it was sorry. It was <laughs> all like of I my had the twi- idea. for 22 years. I've been struggling to do <laughs> a podcast. Out of the womb, I had this idea. Yeah, yeah. So, no, but whatever. Uh, you, know, words, you know, it's the first words. The first words Lee spoke to her mom is, <laughs> "Mom, what the hell's a podcast? <laughs> I don't know, uh, honey. Time, Maybe it's yeah. something that you'll invent." Right. Um. Okay. So. Okay, so let's so influence. Let's talk about like radio influence or like who do you embody when you get in front of a mic? Or it's just you, I know. Nobody. Who did you listen to? If there's a model, you know, I've always felt that the the one gift, if it is a gift that you can give, that you owe listeners is sincerity. Uh, I've heard too many people who are insincere and even worse phony on the radio uh they will do whatever it takes or what they think will get listeners i spent a lot of time over the years with howard stern in his studio in manhattan and watched him work and you can think whatever you want about howard stern and the kind of person he is and the subject he is he is who he is uh, that is the reason he is arguably the most successful radio disc jockey, in, certainly financially, in the history of this medium. He asked, he never had to fake it. He never had to pretend that he wasn't the sophomore in high school who was allowed to ask the questions a sophomore in high school would like to ask. Uh he did have a, a you know a pretty big staff helping him, and I knew that too was important. There are too many people I've seen in this business who think that they, all by themselves, are interesting enough to stay on the air for an hour or two hours or three hours a day. They don't have guests. They they read the paper and will comment. I don't care what someone a disc jockey in Chicago thinks about. Yes, it's sad in Houston. Interview somebody from Houston. Call Houston. I know it's a terrible tragedy. Uh, you know, if it, you know, what would happen is if Jesus Christ came back, right? And he came to Todd and Todd Manley and uh, Stephanie Menendez here and said, uh, "Yes, I'm Jesus and I'm back." And I, I'm wondering if I could have a you know four hour show at some time during the days. Well, of course they would say. If you've gone to anybody else, Jesus, and you come to us, and we have exclusive on you, 
they'd say yes. But even Jesus, you couldn't have on for four hours a day because eventually you'd go, people would be calling in, go, hey, don't tell that bread and loaves story again. You told that three days ago. What's the matter with you? Get a guest or something. <laughs> I don't want those same stories. I know your dad. You have more, no more stories about your dad, okay? It can't be done. And I think that's one of the things, that's why I always, I am, I can be modestly interesting over a couple cocktails in a bar, but, but I'm, not, I'm not that interesting. You know what? I, I lead a pretty interesting life I, because I interview interesting people. And so that's why I like to have people on about whom I am curious. How did you write this book? Why did you make this album? Why did you? Who are you? Where do you come from? What do you want to do? Why do you do what you do? <clears throat> Figuring if, you know, I'm interested, there'll be somebody listening who's interested in it. It's certainly more interesting. That's why I don't take phone calls. You know, I respect the listeners, but you know what? They're called listeners. I don't pay them to be part of the proceedings. And I've seen too often they don't, you know, I don't need, hey, love you, love your show. I, I don't care. I'm sure you do, and that's great. Tell me, tell me when you see me. Some people do need that, it seems. Don't announce it over the air. Yeah, I know. And that's why I'm always, I, I prefer to just do guests and talk to them. Because that's about, your job. About their lives. That's... Well, but it's also, it's all of our jobs. I know, I know. You know, we don't need to Give be. voice pa- to the voiceless. <clears throat> yeah, and some of them aren't really voiceless, yeah. but 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 certainly people on the on the radio. But it's interesting to know, and it's good to you know, a one day a week show. I can I have the the luxury of being able to read a book instead of saying, "So what's your book about?" It it would be more like, "Now how did you in this book you write about, you know, Nazi Germany and why you you seem to have no familial relationship with that? How did that happen?" Right. You know, and it it might wind up being more interesting than the so what's your book about it I, I don't like to think of the show and what I do as a as a, as a as sort of another spoke in the promotional wheel you know someone wants to read your book listen talk about your book and if they're you know intrigued maybe they'll buy it mm-hmm. or unless you're Jim Post there's some listeners out there who will buy anything Jim Post does meaning Lee Graham's mom <laughs> Good old Nancy. Nancy. Or good young Nancy. Um, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, but I think that's why you do this. You're curious yeah, about yeah. about what influences and drives people. So if there's any model for what I do, and I used to see, I used to watch Paul Harvey do what he does, too, and fascinating, very... He doesn't have a show, but, but that was fascinating, too, was Studs Terkel, who for almost half a century had an hour-long show in this town, that basically interviewed people, uh, you know, everybody from, you know, Albert Schweitzer to the 23. To, if you can go find it, just Google Studs Terkel, Bob Dylan Radio, and you'll hear one of the great hours in the history of radio. It's Do the, we, we might have played some of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's Studs Terkel oh. interviewing the 22-year-old Bob Dylan, oh my God. who is certifiably the Bob Dylan we all know. Yeah. He was full-formed at 22. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And Studs, Studs convinces him to take out his guitar in studio and play live on the air. He plays like seven songs. And initially, Dylan's like, well, and Studs like, well, now, Bob, if you could, could maybe play a song, play a song for the, the listener. 
Well, you know, it'd sound better on the disc if you played it on the disc. Well, but but you know, if you could just if you could play a little bit, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to watch her and watch her. Well, but it'd be better on the disc. And Studs beats him down, man. Yeah. And, and Dylan Dylan takes out his guitar and plays first song he plays is "The Hard Rain's Gonna Fall," and then he plays other songs during the hour. And it's I mean, it's really it's really something. I need to find that. Yeah. Oh, it's easy. It, it just you Google Studs Circle Bob Dylan Radio. It's now archived on the StudsCircle.org yeah, archive. Right. And, and uh, wow. but it's really an amazing. I'm like getting teared up. It's an amazing. Uh, well, and also Studs was doing that in an era where there wasn't a lot. I mean, this mm-hmm. this crazy celebrity world in which we live, where everything is self promotional. You tell me, what are you going to get Beyonce to come in and talk to Bill and Wendy? That's not going to happen, man. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, on the subject of music, and we can round it off here. Um, I know music's a huge, huge part of your life. You yeah, love, sure. You love it. Yep. Um, wh- who would you list as, like, you know, your biggest... My biggest musical, musical influence? influence <laughs> or, I don't know about influence, <coughs> but... Boy, that's a good question. Whatever. I don't know. I have seen a lot of live music in my day, and I, uh, I hearken back, like your mom, to those days in Old Town, when Old Town was a a hotbed of creativity and you had a bar like the Earl of Old Town just north of the corner of North and Wells that featured such people, um, many of them my heroes. I'm not sure there's a better living songwriter than John Prine who wrote most of his great songs when he was in his 20s and you listen to these songs and you go, how could you know so much about life? You're a mailman from Maywood, man. (laughs) And Steve Goodman uh, who died way too young, Bonnie Kolak, when it's still alive, lives in northern, uh, north uh, eastern Iowa with her husband Bob Wolf, one of the sweetest voices ever. The Holstein brothers, good old Jim Post, who your mom is very lucky that she didn't meet him when she and he were both single, because least post you would have grown <laughs> up in Galena or someplace. Oh, God. But then, you know, Dylan and The Doors and a lot of jazz uh, influence because my father was, uh, you know, my father who had seen Ella Fitzgerald at a place called The Four Deuces and seen Louis Armstrong play greatly influenced me. And one of the great things, too, is there was no, he was as likely to play, uh, you know, Sarah Vaughan as he was Barbara Streisand. You know, and it, it it was that, you know, I talked about it earlier on, all the various writers who would hang out at our house, too. There was never any, like, you shouldn't listen to this. It right. was, you can listen, and that's a great thing. That's a great lesson. You can listen to anything. And everything. My dad is the same way Good as your dad. Good for him. I mean, growing up, it's like, you know, anything from Frank Zappa to Prince to Beastie Boys yeah. to Beatles, obviously. You know, the great Every, thing, and I'm sure you hear it, too. It's like, I'll hear from people like, well... Well, I don't, I don't, I don't like jazz. I don't listen to jazz. You say, well, why not? Well, you know, maybe it's. I once heard a Miles Davis album. I said, well, why don't you listen to Ella Fitzgerald sing and then tell me you don't like it? And all you have to do, if you don't like something, if it's country, give it five minutes. Yeah. And then, if you don't really like it, then you never have to worry about it. But if you do, the rest of your life is enriched by it. Yes, and. And there's a genreizing music is so hard, too, because it's like you don't like jazz. What like that's the basis for 
lots of music even today you know right. so right. It's, it's just yeah i agree i mean like i would be you know i'm not a country and western fan but that's not to say i don't love you know but lots of to, you know, country music and bluegrass my dad's go listen to some you know vintage you know oh, exactly. vintage willie nelson and yeah. waylon jennings hank williams and hank williams and even, and even. you know woody guthrie yes. what do you think that is exactly you know i mean even the you beatles know. did beat uh, country songs that's right so um okay so then my very last question for you is why chicago and i know you've lived here your whole life so well, most of your whole life. Well, I lived in uh, lived Spain in for Spain. a while, and then Did I lived in New York? New York. Yeah, I lived in New How York for there? a while, about a year, living at uh, Bowery and Houston, which is so different now. What Get, year was that? Oh, uh, boy, 19. Uh, I wasn't working. I didn't have a full-time job, so probably 79? No, no, 84. That's a good question. Like 85, maybe 85. What were you doing? I was uh, I had left the Sun Times mm-hmm. and uh, I was uh, as they say between jobs I was freelancing it's before I came back here to work in TV for a while I was writing I was then writing a oh no wait a minute now that you mention it my father was still at the Sun Times so this would have been wow maybe I was even younger maybe it was like early 70s I think it was right right after I got back from Spain are you glad he did that in New York? Yeah, yeah. yeah what did yeah. it prove to you? Uh, it proved to me that I love New York and can't afford to live there. <laughs> uh, certainly now. It's gotten more and more and more and more out of my price range. Yeah. But it was where I met Ben Heck's wife, where I interviewed George Burns, where I did a column for the Sun-Times, thanks to my father, reviewing five books a week. So I wrote five books a week. Uh, for fifty dollars, uh, but I read a lot. Yeah, and uh, you know, went to CBGB and got to know Patty Smith, and you know, shut it, up. No, it was the early seventies, and it was it was saw some very interesting things, and it was a uh, it was a, uh, a eye-opening good, time. Yeah, good year. Yeah, it was a great year. It was a great year. Sounds like we could do a whole podcast on that. Pardon me. Yes. Um, so. Chicago, though, what 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 did being away from it teach you about Chicago? It wasn't one of those. Oh man, do I miss Chicago? There's a they, you know, I, certainly I am intimately familiar with Chicago, and one of the joys for me in what I've done and been kind of carved out my own thing is to travel all across the city and to get to know every part of this city. <laughs> which sadly a lot of people, unless you're a cab driver or Uber driver, don't really get to do. You you we you go to work, and this is n- n- nothing. I've been incredibly lucky to be able to just say, okay, let's go this way or let's go this way. And I think it's as vibrant and interesting and in many ways sad a city as there is in this country. Maybe even this world. I mean, London's a fascinating place, and it would be hard to swallow it uh, whole even if you're there for years you know to, I, I think I understand Chicago on a certain level and I think I cry for certain neighborhoods in Chicago and the familiarity allows me to to get a handle on it in a way that I could not get a handle on any other place and now that I've been here for so long and I like visiting other places. There's no doubt about that. But this is where I'm stuck. 
And if I'm lucky, I'll be, I'm not going to be buried. I want to be burned up when it's time to go. But I was out at Graceland Cemetery a few days ago to see the new monument put in for the, the grave of Ernie Banks. And I thought, man, this is okay in some fashion. Just toss my ashes here somewhere. This is, this is not a bad place to spend eternity. Yeah. Beautiful out there. Okay, so I turn 24 tomorrow. Oh, my uh, God, it is your on birthday. on August 21st, 2017. Your so birthday. Yeah. Um, 24. And I know. One tr- year per hour in the day, baby. I'm trying to remember, <laughs> man. I'm trying to remember. What time were you born? Do you know? 5.18 in the morning really? at I my was, house. I was in early. I was last call, baby, too, like 4.15. Yeah. Not at, not at, uh, not at our house. Yeah. Um, so what... What are you going to do? I've, How are you going to celebrate? I don't know. I think we're going to go dancing and drinking and... Good. Something like that. I'll let you know. <laughs> Happy birthday, honey. Okay, cool. Sorry, Brad. Um, so okay, so then, so okay, twenty-four. What 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 advice would you have given your twenty-four-year-old self? I mean, I know it's such a generic question, but I'm, I'm just to get interested. a get a fucking job. Uh, <laughs> my twenty-four-year-old self. Uh, looking back and having any regrets, I none. I mean, I would say, you know, I was I was influenced and raised correctly to take life as it comes, but to really realize that that life can be so much more interesting if you just get out there. Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of regrets. Maybe some minor ones, some girlfriends here or there that I would have uh, could have spent time with someone else. But uh, you know, it's it's treat. I've always done this. I mean, you know, don't look through people. We're all in this together. And treat people fairly, not, you know, do one, do others or anything, but, and stay curious. I mean, that's what I was curious then, and I think that hasn't changed a bit. Happy birthday. Thank you, Rick, and thank you so much for joining me. This has been a trip, as predicted. Um excited to work with you i'm oh, it's so been, it's great fun honored. for me too honey um no, don't be honored it's fun <laughs> it That's is what life it's fun. Is. fun fun i love fun. that we're friends and me i too. love that thing that you said when you brought me out to dinner a couple months ago that you don't believe in age i think that's i don't cool. what, what? yeah so 24 whatever yeah Just seriously, another year. 20, it, it isn't i mean all you people out there <clears throat> think about all the people you know and the people I, that I think you love and respect and want to spend time with, if it's time for the right reasons, there, there is no age attached to that. There, sh- there certainly shouldn't be. You know, you look older or look younger, but it's all a mindset. Yep, I agree. Um, thank you for joining me. Rick Kogan uh, can be found in your Tribune. Uh, whether online or in your hands, however you fold it. And also, uh, we have a show Sunday nights. Yes, that's right. Uh, Sunday night. WGNradio.com or 720 if you're in the area or in the greater region. Um, and it's an amazing show, and I'm so lucky to work on it. Thank you again for coming Anytime, on. Honey. And this is Lisa FM. Mm-hmm.